The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Diagnosing and Treating Hyperlipidemia in Family Medicine, Exploring the Latest Clinical Evidence and the Role of Novel PCSK9 Targeting Therapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash QCN 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Dr. Scott Wright from Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome to this educational activity on diagnosing and treating hyperlipidemia. It's really important to detect and diagnose dyslipidemia early in life. And in fact, the latest standards from the United States and Europe really emphasize this. When we look at where lipid levels have gone over the last 15 years, of interest, they have started to fall a bit, I think reflecting the emphasis on health and lifestyle mitigation, as well as the transition to a healthier diet with regard to cholesterol. You can see that from 2007 to the latest data in 2018, the average total cholesterol has fallen slightly by about 10 to 15 milligrams per deciliter in men and women. Although women continue to have, surprisingly, in my opinion, higher cholesterol levels than men. HDL cholesterol hasn't changed much, but that's really not a big surprise in a sense, because it's really a genetically determined and then a lifestyle determined level. Low density lipoprotein levels have tracked with total cholesterol levels. They're down about 5 to 10%. Men and women have very similar levels now compared to 10 or 15 years ago. And then triglyceride levels have really fallen, I think, reflecting the shift to a healthier diet, as well as really just being smart about the types of foods that we consume. Now, the treatment of dyslipidemia has been challenging. In the early 90s, when first National Cholesterol Education Panel was put together, the thought was that we had to give patients a number, and that number was important, and that it would help them to understand if they were at goal or above goal with treating their lipids. And even as late as 2013, we continued to use LDL cholesterol numbers or targets as the threshold for treatment. And then in 2013 through about 2018, the guideline writers decided to delve away from that and to look at percent reductions and intensity of statin therapy. Rightly or wrongly, that set of decisions resulted in less optimal control of patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And in 2018, after a lot of discussion along the broader provider community, probably in your mind and certainly in my advocacy, LDL levels and thresholds were reintroduced. The treatment for dyslipidemia today is based upon understanding the long-term risks that our patients face. Both the European and American guidelines recommend that we risk score patients looking at their 10-year risks. I often say to my patients, I'm interested in your 10-year risks, but I'm bullish on your survival. I think you might live 20 or 30 more years, so let's also think about that risk as well. And the guideline documents really in 2018 had a bit of a difference, right? If you had a patient with some degree of risk, the U.S. guidelines said drop the LDL 30 to 50%, and the European guidelines said, nope, we like the LDL less than 100, which is how I have been practicing for most of my career. And then in patients who were at high risk, we wanted the LDL lower. The European guidelines said, yeah, we want the LDL less than 70, or if it's higher than 70 when they have an event, we want a 50% reduction, which makes sense. And the U.S. guidelines said, oh, we want to stick with what was achieved in the high-intensity statin trials, which was a 50% reduction. And then for patients at very high risk, the thought was that there should be an LDL of less than 70 and a non-HDL cholesterol of less than 100. The difference between LDL and non-HDL is that non-HDL is the total aggregate atherogenic lipoprotein scoring in the lipid profile. It takes into account VLDL and IDL. And the Europeans said, well, we think that the latest data, like Improve It and others, showed that an LDL less than 55 is appropriate. That's where we should be. And so as you see, I think the European guidelines were about three to five years ahead of the U.S. guidelines at recognizing where lipid therapy and what lipid goals should be and recommended it. Both sets of guidelines recommended the oral agents that we had available, statins, zetamibe, and the injectable monoclonal antibodies to PCSK9. And none of them addressed some of the newer therapies, like the small interfering RNA inhibitor of PCSK9 and glycerin. And the reason they didn't mention it is that the outcome or phase three studies with glycerin had not been published. So the new therapies that have emerged include bifidoic acid, evacinumab, and you know additional therapies like lamidipides, which is you know one for familial FH and is very hard to give. 
So in 2022, we have a new set of guidelines that are out that deal with cholesterol metabolism. It's not a guideline document, but an expert consensus pathway. It's what's done in the interim between the guidelines being developed. So they've started suggesting that we needed to continue to look at patients in two broad categories, secondary prevention and primary prevention. And in primary prevention, we need to recognize that not all patient subpopulations are created with the same risks, that some patients have higher risks than others. And this is something you know intuitively as a clinician, right? That a person without atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, but who has 15 years of type 2 diabetes mellitus is at higher risk of a future cardiovascular event than someone who does not have type 2 diabetes mellitus. Or someone without any evidence of coronary disease, but who has very high LDL cholesterols, so let's say above 190 milligrams per deciliter, are at much higher risk than someone whose LDL cholesterol is 100 by just their lifestyle. And so the recommendation is that we need to look and subgroup these categories into risk, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, and also look at risk-enhancing factors, things that may not be fully validated as risk factors, but that add two lipids and add two diabetes and add two other things that we look at as risks and that make that person's individual risk go up because they have a risk enhancer. And it's important, I think, to always be reminded that we have to follow lifestyle recommendations and that lifestyle is an important part of lipid management in every patient population. You just can't take a pill or an injection and do away with eating a horrible diet. You have to be intelligent and wise about the diet that you choose, managing your weight and controlling your other risk factors. And you can see this on the right-hand part of the screen. So they've recommended formal consultation with a dietitian or a nutrition specialist in lipids. Always helpful, in my opinion, to do that. Our patients need reminders. They need education from someone other than ourselves. We can only teach them so much. They need to hear it from other sources too. Secondly, azetamide continues to be recommended because of its very good tolerability. It's effect at lowering LDL 15 to 20%, and it's evidence that it actually can reduce cardiovascular events a little bit on top of the statin. Bile acid sequestrants continue to be recommended, although those are challenging, and most of us who have used them in our patients discover that the tolerability for them is much less than the newer therapies. And then the newer drugs that have been FDA approved, like bempopidoic acid and enclisiran, should be uh, considered and can be used. LDL apheresis is an important treatment in people with homozygous FH for sure, or maybe heterozygous FH if they do not tolerate any other therapies. And then we have two new therapies for homozygous FH. Now, let's look at some of the algorithms. And this is true for almost all documents written by cardiologists or cardiovascular professionals. We like branching algorithms. It fits our learning preference style that we in this part of the medical specialty have. I'm just going to highlight the high points here. Number one, in primary prevention, like I said, these are the patients that need to be treated. And these patients have differentiating risks depending on their LDL cholesterol value. But it's important to risk stratify these populations. And in secondary prevention, the change has been to sort of divide patients into risks. So not at very high risk. I call that moderate risk, right? I think moderate sounds better. We have high risk and then very high risks, groups of patients. So these are important pathways. And our case studies will, I think, illustrate that for you. Now, who's considered at high risk based upon the guideline document and then the subsequent treatment algorithm guidelines? Well, anyone with a personal history of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease defined as a coronary artery event like an acute coronary syndrome, a myocardial infarction, or revascularization, anyone with peripheral arterial disease or cerebral vascular disease, including a TIA. So any adults over age 20 who have had one of these, these are high risk and they are likely to have a future event. Also, anyone over age 20 to age 75 or so who has heterozygous FH with an LDL above 190, they're very high risks, frankly, because they are going to have events. And patients who have a calculator risk score above 20% of a 10-year risk. And you can do those calculations and figure it out. Now, very high risk are people who've had multiple events with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So let's say a recent acute coronary syndrome or myocardial infarction, followed by revascularization, or they may have concurrent peripheral arterial disease that have required an amputation or revascularization, or patients who have had a single major atherosclerotic cardiovascular event and then have additional risk factors such as type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease, they're an active smoker, 
They have an LDL above 100 despite maximally tolerated multiple oral therapies, right? These are patients who are at very high risk, meaning that disease will progress. Even if we have them on a statin and a zetamide, the disease will progress. And so those are the patients that we really need to treat. Now, there are some risk enhancers that we talked about earlier, okay? Uh, so let's think about those for just a minute. A family history, for example, of premature ASCVD. Now, what's premature ASCVD? And many of my patients believe it's a parent who had an event at their age or close to their age, right? We all get that kind of scare as we get to the age of our parents or grandparents when they had their first event. But really, it's for events happening in men under the age of 55 or women under the age of 65. So if your patient says, my father or my mother had an event and ask about the age and if it fits the age range, then that's a risk enhancer. Primary hypercholesterolemia with an LDL above 160 is a risk enhancer. Uh, the presence of metabolic syndrome. And the criteria are outlined here for you, but you know who those patients are. A chronic kidney disease, meaning a GFR of less than 60, is now a risk enhancer. And the lower the GFR, the greater the risks, okay? And chronic inflammatory conditions, things like rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, psoriasis, or having HIV or AIDS are all chronic inflammatory diseases. I don't know for sure, but I suspect in five years, we're going to put long COVID in this risk enhancer. The data are already there, right? If you've had COVID, you've got twice the risk of a myocardial infarction or AFib or a stroke within a year of COVID if you're at the right age range. And so I think that's a risk enhancer, but we haven't included it because it's not well established. But I think you should consider it in your practice as well as someone in the family who had a history of premature menopause or a pregnancy-associated condition like preeclampsia or pregnancy-associated diabetes, those are risk enhancers, okay? Additional biochemical risk enhancers include an elevated ApoB, especially above 130 milligrams per deciliter. ApoB, as you may recall, is the lipoprotein that attaches itself to atherogenic lipoprotein. So it's the protein that goes with LDL and VLDL. It's like the zip code that specifies where the cholesterol particles to be delivered, but it's in a risk enhancer as well when it's high. And finally, you know, any evidence of peripheral arterial disease, even asymptomatic when the ABI is less than 0.9 is a risk enhancer. So remember, any one or more of these elevates your level of risk, one for your patient. So if your patient's at moderate or intermediate risk and they have one of these, it goes to high. And frankly, if they have two or three, it probably should be very high. And if they're at high risk and they get one of these, it goes even higher. Now, how do you calculate 5, 10, 20, 30-year risks? Well, there are some great risk calculators online. I would recommend you use one of these. These are really good tools, and they're easy to find. The links are here in the slide for you. Well, how frequently should we screen cholesterol, right? The CDC in 2022 says every adult over age 20 should get one every five years. I think that's great. I don't think we do that often enough in our practices, certainly not in my practice where I work, but we should be. Children and adolescents need their lipids checked, too. It would surprise you that 6% of males and 3% of females who are adolescents have an LDL that's high that would need treatment above 130. And about a half a percent have evidence of familial FH, that is an LDL at or above 190 milligrams per deciliter. There are a lot of gaps in the treatment of patients who have had atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. It's shocking, isn't it, that only three out of four patients who are post-ACS are getting a statin at hospital discharge. Why are we not doing it in everyone? It should be as common as aspirin, as clopidogrel, and as a beta blocker. And frankly, there's a large variation in practice. Some practices do it at 100%, and some practices do it at 20%. And it's a challenge. Now, FH, familial hypercholesterolemia, is a second gap in care. First of all, it's underdiagnosed, right? Most of you probably don't know how to diagnose it. I have to look it up sometimes to figure it out. And less than half of cardiologists and about two out of three primary care providers were unable in a recent survey to diagnose it. I'm not surprised because in the past it required genetic testing and now we have much easier criteria to really diagnose it. And one of the real clues that your patient may have this is someone whose LDL is persistently high despite being on a good dose of an intense statin. So something to think about. And what's really unfortunate is that this class of patients really need PCSK9 therapy, but unfortunately, we just don't seem to do it. There's a lot of PCSK9 treatment hesitancy for reasons that I don't understand, except probably we're just not comfortable doing it. So I'm hoping my talk today will help you to feel a little more comfortable in the correct patients, the appropriate patients to use these drugs. Well, let's look now at some evidence-based recommendations about how we can use the newer therapies on top of statins and azetamide to help our patients get to where they need to be. Let me emphasize from the beginning that 
there should be a stepwise approach to treating these patients. Start with lifestyle. Have a discussion. And if you don't like having these discussions, refer them to a nutritionist or a lifestyle coach or get a partner in your practice, a nurse or someone who does like to do this kind of teaching and coaching. And then, of course, the first line of therapy should be a statin in any patient who can tolerate a statin. And the dose and intensity of the statin should be chosen based upon their LDL level and where you want it to go, right? If the LDL is 105 and you need it below 100, well, you know, 20 milligrams of a simvastatin or 10 milligrams of a torvastatin or 5 over suva will get you there. But if the LDL is 160 and you need it below 70, well, you're going to probably need two medications. So the next drug after a statin is azetamibe. It's well-tolerated. It's well-established. It's generic. So it's very affordable. And then after that, I think the PCSK9 targeting drugs are the next step. And then, of course, if your patient has statin intolerance or has other issues, you may want to think about pimpopidoic acid or one of the other newer therapies. Okay? Now, lifestyle modification works, but it doesn't solve the problem in everyone. But in some patients, it works exceedingly well. So here you can see some data from the PREMIER trial, which was a multicenter randomized trial of about 756 adults who had either prehypertension or stage one hypertension, and they underwent evaluation using behavioral counseling plus a diet, and that reduced weight by about 5% over the first six months, which is remarkable, frankly, and it resulted in a substantial change in their cholesterol values, right? The cholesterol fell about 20 to 25%, which is pretty important. LDL fell a little bit less, but what was really interesting about all of these measures is that the more serious the patient took the lifestyle intervention, that is the number of sessions they attended to improve their health, sort of predicted how effective these therapies would be. If they just were like, well, ho-hum about it, I'll come once, twice, then I'm done, didn't get much of a benefit. But if they were fully committed to this, attended 20, 25, 30 sessions, they had pretty significant reductions in blood pressure, weight, and in their cholesterol values. So lifestyle works, but the person really has to be committed to it. Now, the U.S. Prevention Task Force, which has always been a more cautious recommender of any screening technique or any therapy, recommends that anyone over age 40 should get a statin for primary prevention if they meet a 10% 10-year cardiovascular risk. Well, they cut it off at age 75. My personal viewpoint is that that's nihilistic. I have a lot of patients in my practice who are 80, 85, 90, and a few who are close to 100. And I certainly don't pull back lipid-lowering therapy in them because I think it's even more important the older one gets. But from this official document, they recommend it from age 40 to 75. And they talk about what do you do if they have less than a 10% 10-year risk? Well, you can certainly look for additional risk factors and then add the statin. Or if your patient is highly motivated and they want to be on one, I think there's very little reason not to prescribe the medication. It's cost-effective, it's inexpensive, it's generic. The side effect profile is well-known and it's reversible if you stop the medication. Now, how are statins utilized? I mentioned earlier that we saw some practices that had enormous variation. It turns out that the utilization of statin therapy has a big impact on secondary prevention in older adults. Now, let's look at these two slides, for example. First of all, let's look at the legends. So, a solid line is high-intensity statin. This type of dashed line is moderate, and then the sort of the dash dot dash is low, and then the dash dot is non-adherent, and then all dots are no statin. Now, in men, we see on the left, women on the right, if no statin was given, the mortality went up over the almost three years of follow-up to approaching 15%, okay? No surprise, if you don't give a statin, you're just repeating the natural history studies we know that show that cardiovascular disease progresses unabated and people will have events and some will die. And if you have a non-adherent patient, someone who's only taking it a day or two a week, and then they forget it for two weeks and they come back on it, well, they do about as poorly as someone not taking a statin at all, surprisingly. If you have low adherence to a statin, you do better. If you have moderate adherence, you do better. And if you have really high adherence, taking it 80, 90% of the time, you have much better outcomes. And the mortality here is about half of what we saw in the people not getting a statin at all or who had non-adherence. So again, you can really reduce risks by keeping your patients on these drugs. And we have a lot of options to choose today for treating dyslipidemia and to reduce LDL cholesterol. Inside the liver, 
the liver synthesizes cholesterol. And we all remember from cholesterol metabolism cycle that you go from pyruvate to acetyl coenzyme A and then HMG-CoA and then to cholesterol. And that HMG-CoA reductase is the rate-limiting step in cholesterol biosynthesis and statins work by inhibiting HMG-CoA reductase. And that's how they reduce de novo cholesterol synthesis. So well-established, well-tolerated. They also impact the prenylation proteins, which may also play a role. Benthopodoic acid is a citrate lyase inhibitor. And what that means is that it actually stops the synthesis of cholesterol upstream from where statins work. So as you go from uh, citrate to acetyl coenzyme A, there is an inhibition there by benthopodoic acid. And by doing that, you block the creation of acetyl coenzyme A, which then blocks the production of HMG-CoA, which then blocks cholesterol synthesis. So those are two oral therapies that we have that lower cholesterol. Now, the third oral therapy that we have is azetamide, but it works very differently, which makes it a wonderful synergistic agent to add to a statin. It actually binds a receptor in the intestine that's called the Neiman-Pick C1-like-1 receptor. I know we all think of Neiman-Pick as a brain issue, right? A brain disease or a neurological disease. But the Neiman-Pick C1-like-1 receptor is also in the intestine. And by blocking that, you block the reabsorption of cholesterol from bile, right? And so by blocking the reabsorption, you excrete more of the cholesterol in your stool. You lower the concentration of cholesterol in the bile, and the liver shunts production of cholesterol out of the bloodstream and into the bile. And then it gets excreted out because its reabsorption is blocked. So it's a wonderful pathway, lowers cholesterol to 15 to 20%. So it's a nice adjunct to statins. And then we have isocapentethyl, which doesn't really do much to LDL, but it's important that it reduces cardiovascular disease and it modulates atherogenic proteins in a very favorable way. And finally, we have the whole class of drugs which modulate the PCSK9 protein family. Now remember, the PCSK9 protein, the protein synthesized by the liver, it goes out of the liver into the bloodstream. It sort of merges with LDL. So when LDL binds to the LDL receptor on the liver, if the PCSK9 protein is bound with it, that sends a signal for the liver to then destroy the receptor when it takes in the LDL PCSK9 protein on the receptor. When that gets internalized, that liver receptor gets destroyed. And so the liver has to take time to synthesize a new one. So inhibiting PCSK9, either by monoclonal antibody or through inclisiran, actually reduces the ability of PCSK9 because the quantity is reduced to bind with LDL. And that allows the LDL receptor on the liver to be prolonged or upregulated. So you have more receptors on the liver per square centimeter. And so you can clear more cholesterol from the body. Clisiran works by blocking the synthesis of PCSK9. It's a small interfering RNA that uses the body's natural processes through the RISC pathway. The RISC pathway blocks the ability of message RNA making PCSK9 to be translated into protein inside the liver, while the monoclonal antibodies just sop it up on the outside, any PCSK9 that is synthesized and produced out. So this is really how the current therapies work by lowering cholesterol, right? And what we know is that icosapenethyl has a marginal effect, 5 to 10%, kind of like benthopodoic acid, which is 20, azetamide 20, in many cases 15. The statins, depending on the drug that you use, can be as much as 60 or as low as less than 40 even, right? If you pick pravastatin, you're not going to get 40. If you pick simvastatin, you might be lucky to get 40, but atorvastatin and rosuvastatin, the two potent ones, really do 40 to 60%. And then the monoclonal antibodies and inclisiran all reduce LDL by 50 to 60%, depending on which study and which population you're looking at. So it's also important to recognize that lipid-lowering action depends upon functioning LDL receptors. If you have a functioning LDL receptor, then a PCSK9 drug works, azetamide works, statins work. But if you do not have good function of the LDL receptor, either through a genetic defect or familial FH, then you may need one of these additional drugs or even apheresis, okay? But for most of the cases that we see, these four groups of therapies will work. We also know from a preponderance of evidence now that the degree of lowering of LDL actually proportionally predicts the degree of risks, okay? So let's go back to the 1990s when I was a young physician treating dyslipidemia and the 4S trial came out. 
Well, it turns out the 4S patients had very high LDL cholesterol. And with that reduction, there was a 25 to 40% reduction in lipids, a 25 to 40% reduction in cardiovascular events. And then we went to more potent statins like a torvastatin and resuvastatin. We were able to get the median LDL and the 95% confidence intervals much lower, and clinical events went down further. And then when we looked at the addition of azetamibe to a statin, you could see that you could bring LDL down a little bit more, right? from 70 to 55 in the trials, the improve it trial. And that was associated with a one and a half percent absolute risk reduction and an 8% relative risk reduction in clinical events. And then finally, the big guns were brought out, the PCSK9 drugs. And whether it's the 4EA trial with evolocumab, the Odyssey outcomes trial with alirocumab, or the phase three trial, the Orion program with Inclisiran we now can see 50% to 60% reductions in LDL on top of what a statin does. So now we have the ability really to take LDL cholesterol to levels that are so low that we've never dreamed of getting them there before. So all three of these agents are FDA approved, and the big differences in them are the following. The monoclonal antibodies, evolocumab and alirocumab, have to be given every two weeks as a patient self-administered injection or a once-a-month injection with an infusion device that takes five to 10 minutes. Whereas in Clisaran is given as a starting dose of one and a half cc's as an injection at the healthcare provider's office with a booster shot, so to speak, at three months. And then every six months after that, they come in for another shot. So it only has to be given twice yearly on average, as opposed to 26 times a year for the monoclonals. And all have been approved for FH patients especially heterozygous FH. Evolocumab has also been approved for homozygous FH, and they've been approved for LDL reductions in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and in Europe for an ASCVD risk equivalent. We don't have risk equivalents in the U.S., so we don't talk about that here very much. So who's most likely to benefit from a PCSK9 therapy, or one of the big guns, as we like to say? Well, really the patients who are at high risk with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease who are not at their lipid goals, their LDL goals. And that means they need at least a 50% reduction in LDL from baseline, hitting a target LDL of 55 to 70, depending on whether they're high or very high risk, or patients who are intolerant to statins, or patients who have contraindications to statins for whatever reason. So these are the patients that we reserve recommending a PCSK9 drug for. I want to show you a couple of data slides on PCSK9 drugs. There have been two outcome trials with the monoclonals, one with evolocumab and one with alirocumab. The alirocumab trial was the Odyssey Outcomes trial. And what they found is that they could really potently drop LDL. Now, let me digress for a moment. It's important to recognize that patients in these trials were all on very high-dose statins. So it's not surprising that they had LDLs of 90 or 95 to start with. But they were on really high doses of atorva or rosuvastatin, and they had had an acute coronary event. So these were the very high-risk patients who were optimally treated. And then they were randomized to placebo or the monoclonal antibody given as a double-blind injected drug or investigational product. And so in Odyssey outcomes, you can see that there was a further reduction in LDL from about 90 milligrams per deciliter down to around 45 milligrams per deciliter at the onset. And over time, that LDL crept back up to around 60. Now, you may be saying, uh, why did it sort of creep back up. And the answer is that the patients were compliant with their statins. Statins actually upregulate the synthesis of PCSK9. It's the body's counter-regulatory way of saying, don't drop cholesterol too much. Let's push the PCSK9 up. That's why the drug is not less effective over time. I think that PCSK9 levels went up a bit because of statin compliance, but they still had very potent reductions of 103 down to 66 by the end of the trial, or really a 40 milligram per deciliter reduction. And that turned out to be a 61% reduction in LDL versus placebo at 12 months. And in the Fourier trial with evolocumab, you see a similar thing where the LDL fell from about 90 down to almost 30 milligrams per deciliter, stayed down below 40, and there was about a 59% reduction in LDL cholesterol. I think both of these trials show us that if we have patients who are resistant to dropping their LDL despite optimal medical therapy, the monoclonal antibodies will drop it for them. And the same is true for Inclisiran. It will do the same. 
Now, here's some real-world responses to evolocumab and alirocumab. And let's start on the left side. This is alirocumab at 75 milligrams twice a month or every two weeks. You get about a 42% reduction in LDL. And then you can double the dose to 150 and you get a 54% reduction. And with evolocumab, you get a 54% reduction using it every two weeks at the dose of 140 milligrams per injection. And I would add, this is very similar to what is seen with Inclisiran. There's a 50 to 55% reduction. Well, let's talk a little bit about Inclisiran. Now, we talked a few minutes ago that PCSK9 is an important protein that regulates LDL cholesterol levels because it regulates how many receptors you have on the surface of the liver. And the more PCSK9 you have, the fewer the receptors for LDL on the liver and the more LDL you have. And the less PCSK9 you have, more receptors you have and the less LDL you have, okay? So we talked about how the PCSK9 protein signals the destruction of the receptor, right? And that if you give a monoclonal antibody, you take away the PCSK9 protein and that receptor then stays on the surface of the liver. Now, inclisiran works differently. It's not a monoclonal antibody, but it actually is a small interfering RNA that targets the liver specifically, and it inhibits the translation of the message RNA for PCSK9. And it goes through the RISC or risk complex, which is the body's natural way of blocking transcription of message RNA into proteins. And so as a consequence of that, it lowers PCSK9 values in a different mechanism than the monoclonal antibodies. Both pathways, whether it's monoclonal or small interfering RNA, result in dramatic drops in circulating PCSK9 and dramatic drops of 50 to 55% in LDL cholesterol. And these are data that we showed at ACC and the AHA over the last few years. And we saw a 50 to 53% reduction in LDL cholesterol that was both durable and persistent, meaning despite only getting injections every six months, the LDL level stayed down. And I think that's one of the remarkable things about a drug that you're only giving twice a year. So there are some practical decisions about which therapy you offer your patients, right? One of it is, which do they feel more comfortable taking? Do they prefer to take a drug every two weeks at home? Or would they rather come into your office and have your nurse or someone you designate to give them the injection every six months? They can also go to an infusion center at a number of places in the U.S. And which one their insurance will cover, right? That's always been the challenge. That was the challenge with the monoclonals when they first came out. It's less of a challenge today. And Inclisiran has about 70 or 80% of insurers now in the United States are covering it. And for the patient on Medicare coverage with a supplemental, the annual out-of-pocket costs for Inclisiran are exceedingly low. And I believe they're likely equally affordable with the monoclonals. And I'm just delighted that we finally are at a time when we have unique therapies that are covered by insurance that our patients can afford to take. And now we can actually disrupt atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and move toward that ultimate goal of really eradicating ASCVD as best we can. So if you're going to use a high-potency statin, you have to take it 365 days a year, which you know you should. If you're going to use a monoclonal, it's about 26 injections a year. I think you get better lipid lowering than with once a month, frankly, but it's 26 injections with Inclisiran, with the exception of the first year, it's every six months. The first year, there's a booster at three months to really facilitate the onset of action. Now, we may not be right, but we postulate that less frequent dosing results in better adherence. And I think that's probably true. Many of the patients I talk to when I offer them a monoclonal or Inclisiran are really attracted to a twice-yearly injection instead of something they have to do at home every two weeks, just just their personal preference. Do we have a cardiovascular proven benefit? Well, with statins, beyond a doubt, right? We know that. We could cite 10 trials, 10 outcome trials. With monoclonals, we do have Odyssey outcomes in 4EA, which showed a benefit. With Inclisiran, the outcome trials are still ongoing. It's a new drug, and it will be a few years before the Orion 4 trial is out, but it's been powered to really and effectively test whether LDL lowering with Inclisiran offers a CB outcome benefit. I would say to date, the lack of outcome evidence does not mean the drug doesn't work for outcomes. Because we face this with statins, with the zetamide, with the monoclonals, and with every other LDL-lowering therapy. And consistently, drugs which lower LDL also improve cardiovascular outcomes. We're, of course, going to make a trust but verify approach with Inclisiran. Well, let's talk about how you might use these. So here's the first case, Patrick. Now, Patrick is a non-Hispanic white male who's 57. 
He's overweight. His BMI is 29. He's had seven years of type 2 diabetes mellitus. He's got high blood pressure and dyslipidemia. His A1C at this office visit is 7.7%. His blood pressure is a little high at 134 over 82, and his LDL is 150. And if we use the current guidelines and the current treatment recommendations, we would say that Patrick is at moderate risk. We might disagree. Some of you might feel he's at high risk. Nonetheless, Patrick is here for semi-annual follow-up, and he's taking benazapril hydrochlorothiazide, atorvastatin 40, and metformin. And when you ask him about prescription refills, Patrick says, yeah, I have plenty. In fact, I don't need the statin for a while. I have a lot of medication left. And you know from your electronic health record that you haven't renewed it in the last three or four months and he should be out. So he's probably not taking it every day. And what we can say is that the risks in a patient like Patrick of lowering LDL depends on the baseline. Now let's go back up. Patrick's LDL is currently 150. So that puts him in this second quadrant here where if we can get his LDL down, we can see about a 30% reduction in cardiovascular risks. Obviously, if you have a lower LDL, your risks are not going to be as dramatically lowered. And if you have a higher LDL, they're a bit more dramatically lowered. And what we would say from Patrick, based on the new treatment statement, is that, you know, Patrick's LDL goal is right here on the right side in this big blue box, 70 milligrams per deciliter. That's where we want to be at. Patrick isn't there. He's at 150, okay? And so what are our choices? Well, we could switch him to a more potent statin. We could add a zetamibe. We could talk with him about compliance, or we could consider a PCSK9 drug. Now, why do patients not take their drugs every day? Well, sometimes it's because the disease process is silent, and they don't feel it. They don't feel the progression of plaque or cardiovascular disease. And so they may not recognize they have to be compliant every day. They may underestimate their own personal risks. They may not think about their cholesterol because they only see it once a year in your office. Or surprisingly, almost 30% of patients don't even know why we've prescribed this cholesterol drug. They just know that we prescribed it. And then, of course, a small percent are concerned about cost or side effects. Now, this study showed 9% cost, 1% side effects, and my practice has flipped. About 1% of people are worried about the cost because the drugs are generic and you can get a statin for $5 a month. But 9 to 20% of people who have a statin tell me after a few minutes of discussion, I'm really worried about side effects and is there anything else? What we again can remind ourselves of is that adherence to a statin is associated with better outcomes. That if you have really top tier adherence, you can see that you have much better survival in this sort of light green or greenish colored line versus the deep navy line here, which is very poor adherence where there is a mortality of about 15, 16% versus, you know, 10, 12% here who had perfect adherence. So again, better adherence results in better outcomes. And we also know that statins substantially reduce the risks of myocardial infarction, stroke, and death. That's really well established, but they do have side effects. Let's be honest, you know, patients have muscle symptoms. Some patients have liver dysfunction. Some will develop renal dysfunction or diabetes, which they attribute to the statin. It may or may not be due to that. But certainly the muscle aches and the elevated transaminases are something to think about. This is a checklist that you can use to help remind you about what you should be talking about with your patients. It's hard to remember all that. I think checklists like this are important for all of us. So let's talk about Patrick for a moment now. What can we do to help Patrick? First thing we could do is increase his atorvastatin to 80, but that would drop his LDL from 150 to about 144. So every time you double a statin, you get an additional six milligrams for deciliter lowering of LDL, okay? So then we wouldn't be at goal for 70 for Patrick just by adding a higher dose of atorvastatin or even switching him to resuvastatin. We could add azetamide and that would drop his cholesterol by 20%. So 20% of 150 is 30. That would take him down to 120 and we still wouldn't be at goal. So I think for someone like Patrick, you know, who likely has either autosomal dominant dyslipidemia or heterozygous FH, because his LDL is still really high despite a good drug, that PCSK9 therapy is the better option for him. And so you could talk with him about evolocumab, alirocumab, or inclisiran. And any of those would drop his LDL about 50%. And in his case, that would get him around the target goal of where he needs to be. Well, let's move on. We have Oscar now. Oscar's a Mexican-American male who's 74. He's had 12 years of type 2 diabetes. He's developed neuropathy, so he's already getting into stage complications. He's had an MI, 
and a PCI with a stent three years ago. So now he's got two risk enhancers. Remember those risk enhancers. He's also got class three heart failure. His ejection fraction is such that he's developed symptomatic heart failure. He's got CKD stage three, GFR is around 40, high blood pressure, his diabetes, A1C, 7.1%, almost perfect control. Blood pressure is under good control, but his LDL is at 150 and his potassium is normal, thankfully. And so he's a very high risk patient because he's got all of the features of being high risk. And because he's got risk enhancers, he's now very high risk. And he's highly motivated to reduce his risk of another MI. He's got some grandchildren he wants to see and watch them grow up, you know. And he's taking a Torva 80 and a Zetamide 10. So he's on really maximally tolerated maximum dose oral lipid therapies. He's on good medications for his hypertension. He's taking good dose of metformin. He's on empagliflozin for his diabetes. That's why his A1C is probably so well controlled. He's on dual antiplatelet therapy. And he's also on a diuretic. What we can tell you is that his ethnicity is such that he's much more likely to have high cholesterol. We don't know if it's genetic or if it's lifestyle, but it seems that Mexican-American and other Hispanic ethnic backgrounds seem to have higher lipids than either Asian or African-American backgrounds, and even higher than Caucasian backgrounds. It's no surprise he has high lipids, right? And it's important to point out that some ethnic backgrounds have more challenges with statins than others. The Asian background seems to have especially difficulty with muscle symptoms. The Hispanic and Latin American backgrounds don't seem to, nor do African-American. And the Caucasian backgrounds seem to have muscle intolerance to a reasonable extent as well, maybe not as much as Asian-Americans. And the drugs are very safe in all populations. I think, you know, you have to think about resuvastatin plasma levels that may go high in Asian-American populations. So you may have to use a lower dose like five, as the FDA recommends. And that, you know, you want to watch CK carefully in all patients and especially in African-American ethnicities, okay? So with this patient, you know, our LDL goal here is less than 55 because he's very high risk. So how do we get there, right? What can we offer him? Well, I think the PCSK9 drug is really the choice for him because he needs a very substantial reduction. And I think we can get there, but I don't think we can get there with any additional oral therapies. And the choices are alirocamab, evolocamab, or glycerin. And we know this from the phase three studies, which have looked at lipid lowering. You can see the number of patients that have been tested in each of these populations, the relative risk reduction that you can see. Now, glycerin doesn't really have outcome data yet. Some of this data is imputed from ad hoc assessments. And I think in the near future, you'll see a publication that looks at association of reduction in MACE, but that's not even a cause and effect. We really have to wait on the Orion 4 outcomes trial to be confident about outcome reductions, but we can be very confident that all will reduce LDL. And can we take his LDL, Oscar's LDL too low? The answer is probably not. Let's look at the sub-analysis from Fourier, which showed that if we dropped his LDL to 0.5 millimolar or about 25 milligrams per deciliter, we take his risks way down. And he's currently at 3.5 millimolar, so we can drop his LDL substantially and drop his risks for both the primary endpoint of 4EA as well as the secondary endpoint. And these are measuring on-treatment lipid values at four weeks after randomization, not at 12 months or two years, but at four weeks. So here we go, Oscar, what do we need to do? Well, he needs a 55 to 60% reduction in LDL. And I don't think we can achieve this with oral therapies alone. So for him, I would switch his Atorva to Resuva 40 leave his azetamide there and either start him on evolocumab, alirocumab, or inclusoran, depending on his preferences about whether he wants to give it at home or come into the office twice a year, take it every two weeks, and also what will his insurance pay for. And I think with those changes, we could get him to his goal. And he decided to go on inclusoran in this case, and we'll see how well he does. The last case we want to talk about is Mindy. She's a, a woman with European and South Asian ancestry. She's 44 years of age, young. She's got a BMI of 27, so just a bit overweight. She had a TIA three years ago and has hypertension. And her blood pressure is now well-controlled, but her LDL is 200. And so that makes her a heterozygous FH or an autosomal dominant dyslipidemia. May not be heterozygous FH, but she fits the pattern. And we should ask her about family history because I bet she's got relatives who have had premature coronary artery disease or maybe even cardiovascular death. 
And she's recently joined your practice and she says, I'm really statin intolerant. I've tried a lot of statins. I get muscle aches and fatigue and she's on a Zetamibe 10. She's on icosapentethyl and she's on good medicines for her blood pressure. Okay. So where should we reduce her? Well, her LDL goal is 70 because she's at high risk. And you may say, well, wait a minute. I think a 44-year-old is very high risk. Well, that's true. She is long-term, 30 years, but her 10-year risks are high. And her LDL target is about 70 that we need to get to. So let's go back. Her LDL is 200. We got to get her down to 70. Wow, that's a huge drop, 60, 70% drop in LDL. She's had statin-associated side effects. Remember, most patients who have statin intolerance have to have intolerance to two or more statins. And, you know, once you prove that, then I think you have options for treating them. And like with her, she's on azetamide, and that's a good first dose, uh, first drug therapy to start, but her lipids remain quite high. And so she needs to be escalated either to one of the new drugs, PCSK9 agents, or perhaps mifepidoic acid with a PCSK9 drug, or even one of the new FH drugs that are targeted for homozygous FH, if you can prove by genetic testing that she has that. Okay. It's important to also point out that a lot of statin intolerance can be due to somewhat misattribution of symptoms. In a number of clinical trials, it's been shown that patients who get randomized to either placebo or statin and then have a crossover, many of them will actually tolerate the statin again. So in our practice at Mayo Clinic, we actually recommend resuvastatin five milligrams weekly, once weekly, as a way to reintroduce the statin to see if they can tolerate taking it several times a week. They may or may not be able to. Many of the patients I see have tried three statins. They have substantial muscle symptoms. It goes away when they stop. It comes back quickly when they start. So they really do have statin intolerance, right? And in reality, in our practice, the perception of statin intolerance really is statin intolerance. The patients make the final decisions about this. And just in terms of FH, I think it's important to point out that between 1 to 300 to 1 to 500 patients have heterozygous FH and about 1 in a million have homozygous FH. And you can make that diagnosis at least at a high level by looking at an LDL of greater than 160 in an untreated patient. Our patient had a treated LDL above 200, so she's heterozygous. And then if you have an LDL level untreated above 400, you definitely have homozygous FH, okay? And do the PCSK9 drugs work with heterozygous FH? The answer is yes. They all work very effectively. And if you could add them to oral medicines, you can really get LDL values down. As you can see on the far right hand, we've added Inclisiran to statin and azetamibe and saw a substantial drop in LDL cholesterol. Now, the side effects between alirocamab, evolocamab, and Inclisiran are very similar. All of them have injection site reactions. It can range from 3 5% all the way up to 8%. Not much difference between the drugs. Maybe a little more with Inclisiran, but again, I think those numbers will change with Inclisiran as more patients get studied. We saw a little bit lower percent than what's reported in the package insert. I'm not quite sure how the regulatory agencies got to 8.2%, but you know they did, and we go with that number. Also, patients will frequently complain of a little bit of nasopharyngitis or of a respiratory infection, and even some with Inclisiran complained of a cough, non-infectious kind of cough for a few days, a little bronchitis. Back pain, interestingly, has shown up with Evolocamab, not with the others few arthralgias with Inclisiran, but similar to placebo. And influenza was seen, perhaps more seen in this population because of the time era it was studied than in this population. So let's get back to Mindy and finish her case, right? So she's got an LDL of 200. She's high risk. And how would we get her to an LDL goal of 70? And let me say first and foremost that that 70 is aspirational in her. It's going to be hard to get there. So what I would recommend is that we get her on a PCSK9 drug, Inclusiran, Evolocumab, Alirocumab, whatever fits her insurance and her preferences. And then I also think we need to add bipopidoic acid in addition to see if we can get even a bit more down. We can get the LDL down 50% on top of azetamibe and icosapentethyl with a PCSK9 drug. So that would get her down to 100. And then maybe 15%, 20% more bipopidoic acid gets her down to about 80 And that would be very close to that aspirational goal of 70 in her. And don't declare yourself a treatment failure because your FH patient will get down to 70. Getting them down to 80 or 90 is a victory. Getting them down to 120 from 200 is a victory. So any degree of lowering is better than no lowering at all. Let me finish and summarize here. Number one, how can we improve lipid control in the United States? Well, the high-level summary 
to answer the question, are we there yet? The answer is we're not, that we still have a lot of patients who have high lipids, despite having good doctors at great medical centers and all the best intentions in the world, but we still haven't gotten everyone to optimal LDL control. And patients who are at high and very high risk are really the low-hanging fruit for us. And those are the easy ones, that we can add an additional oral therapy or add a PCSK9 drug. And it's important to remember that PCSK9 therapies will reduce LDL by 50% or more, whichever strategy you choose. It's important to remember that the risk level of the patient you're treating should drive your LDL goal or threshold that you aim for. Very high risk based on the latest statement published by the cardiology community is an LDL of 55, high risk 70, intermediate or not high risk is 100. And it's important to recognize that it's going to take several therapies now. So it's polypharmacy for lipids, unfortunately. A single drug just will not do it to get patients in the very high and high risk categories to the thresholds we need. And that I think it's going to take a significant uptake in the use of PCSK9 therapies as frequent add-ons to get patients down to those goals. And finally, I want to say, don't be afraid to drive the LDL even lower. If you add the alirocamab or glycerin or evolocamab and their LDL goes from 100 down to 50 or 40, is it too low? And the answer is no, it's not. We've learned from Fourier that there really is not an LDL threshold that's too low that causes problems. And the body has its own reserve pathway that it converts HDL back to LDL if necessary, if LDL gets too low and there are end organs that need some LDL delivered. That's called the CETP pathway. And that mitigation and reduction in risks requires holistic management. And family physicians know this better than cardiologists. We need to treat lipids, but also lifestyle, blood pressure, diabetes, stress, family issues, and anything else that may come along. Well, where's the future going in lipid treatment? Well, we're at an exciting era at this point. We've gone from daily medicines to monoclonals to now injectables. And I think we're going to be on a threshold of getting to where we can give injectables less frequently at some point over the next 10 to 20 years, and maybe even in gene editing that might last a lifetime where we can actually help our patients and really, really achieve the goal that Dr. Braunwald has set out for us, which is to eradicate atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And this ends our discussion on the treatment of dyslipidemia with a special focus on the newer therapies, the PCSK9 drugs, and how they may be both relevant and applicable to your practice situation. I really hope you found the information helpful and useful. And I want to thank you for participating and for the opportunity to share my ideas and vision with you about how we together can really eradicate atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and better control lipids in the patients that we see and treat in our practices. This activity is certified by the University of Cincinnati. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash QCN860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.